Our text for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and this is God's Word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you will use your word here this morning to draw people to salvation and to work on the lives of the saved in sanctification. Give us hope and give us joy, I pray, but give us, give us repentance. Give us wisdom. Give us conviction when we need it. And let us be people who love you well we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, last week we saw Peter sharing with the church uh, some reasons why it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter showed us that Christ had suffered and died and rose victorious, even victorious over all the spiritual forces that might try to derail God's plan. And now, Jesus is in heaven, enthroned above all, and he's awaiting the final consummation of his kingdom. But, and all that spiritual victory stuff, that sounds really good, doesn't it? You guys like the idea of some spiritual victory, being victorious people? Okay. Half of one of you is interested in that. But what about when we hurt? What about when we hear about Christians who are being persecuted? What about all that victory then? I mean, we still live in a hard world. How in the world are we supposed to make it I mean, when the world thinks we're nuts, and when it looks like that we're going to get the short end of the stick, how do we continue to press on? In today's passage, Peter's going to show us three key things to remember as we try to live for the glory of Christ in a difficult age. He's going to call us to be eternally minded like Christ in all of that. Let's get ready and give it a shot here. Point number one. Arm yourself with a holy mindset. Arm yourself with a holy mindset. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, 
no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter is going to take us from a point of considering the finished work of Christ at the end of the last chapter, and he's going to show us what we need to do in order to live out a faithful Christianity in a fallen world. Verse 1, Peter, he connects our actions to the work of Christ. He, he says, since Jesus suffered in the flesh, you and I have something we're supposed to do. And that reference to the suffering, that's all the stuff we saw at the end of chapter 3, especially verse 18. Jesus had been mocked, he was betrayed, he was beaten, he was crucified, died, buried. And yes, Jesus rose again. And we know, we know that we have life and we have victory. We only have salvation because of the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. Well, because Jesus physically suffered for us as he did, laying down his life to save our souls, you and I are called by God to do something. Peter says that we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. And that, that verb there, arm yourself, that's a military word. You and I are supposed to get ready for battle. We're supposed to, you know, if you're watching the movies, when they tell the guys to lock and load, you know what I mean? Kit up, get your stuff, whatever it is, right? Grab your weapon is what Peter's saying. You're supposed to equip yourself for a fight that you know is coming. And the question then comes, how do you and I equip ourselves? Well, we don't draw physical weapons. That's not how we equip ourselves. Here, the weapon that you are to draw is a particular mindset. If you want to make it in this world, you've got to adopt a similar mindset to the one that Jesus Christ had in his suffering. So that raises a question, right? This is not, this is not rocket science. What is the mindset that Jesus Christ had? Because I need that same mindset. Jesus was willing to suffer and even to die in order to accomplish the plan of God for the glory of God. And if you and I want to make it in this hard world, we have to set our minds in such a way that you and I are willing to suffer, that you and I are willing to experience loss, that you and I are even willing to die if necessary in order to do what will glorify God. For this entire book, Peter's been challenging our mindset. He calls Christians to get ready. He wants you to tighten up. He wants you to square your shoulders. He wants you to lean into the wind. He wants you to march forward. And Peter has never once pretended that what he's asking you and me to do is going to be easy. But what Peter is doing is he's telling us that if, if we willingly live to the glory of God, if we're willing to be prepared to suffer before we dishonor God, if we are willing to give up certain comforts or certain pleasures that the world thinks are great so that we can bear the name of Christ, Peter says that is all worth it. Every bit of that is worth it in the light of eternity. So I ask you a question, and I'm not even messing with you here. Christian, are you willing to believe that? Are you willing to face pain in the here and now for joy in forever?
Are you willing to choose suffering or even loss over disobedience and sin? Arm yourself with a holy mindset. Arm yourself with Jesus Christ's own willingness to die before he would dishonor his father. Then Peter goes on to say, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Don't let that feel confusing to you. Peter's not saying that if you've gone through a hard time, you'll never sin again. What Peter's doing is painting a little metaphorical picture that tells you and me how to know when we belong to Jesus. Now, I mean, on the one hand, you've got to recognize Jesus suffered how much? He suffered to the point of death, and he was paying for the sins that God would forgive. And so when Jesus' suffering was over, his suffering was over. He was done with our sins. He fully paid the price. He would never pay it again. And so his death was the end of suffering for sin. But for you and me, I guess one truth is, if you suffer to the point of death, you're going to be done sinning. But I don't think that's what Peter's totally after here. When we are willing to suffer, when we're willing to take pain above sin, when you're willing to take loss above choosing sin, you are demonstrating that you have made a break with your, formal, your former sinful life. You show that you're done with sin by being willing to suffer pain and loss and hardship and all the rest before you would do something that would go against the ways of the Lord. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34 and 35? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What did Jesus show us? He showed us right there that Christian living involves knowing that your life in this world is forfeit for an eternally better life to come. Let me just ask you, I'm stepping aside from my notes. It always gets me in trouble when I do. But do you think that's a good deal? Yes. Is it worth it to say, I will let go this life for one to come? Well, I mean, think about it this way. If, if, if somebody who was uber rich walked up in front of you and said, I want you to give me a dollar. And they said, if you do that, they could give you a billion dollars. Would you say, you know, I really like my dollar. <laughs> what would you call somebody who said that? <laughs> Thank you. Is that not what we do when we value the pleasures of this life over the one to come? Juan Sanchez wrote the book, First Peter for You, which is a really nice little read, little kind of a light Bible study commentary of First Peter. He helps us understand what Peter wrote here with that passage from Jesus like this. He says, quote, Peter is simply echoing Jesus' teaching. But let's put it in opposite terms of how Jesus said it. If you don't suffer as a Christian in this world, 
It's because you have chosen the will of man with its sensualities and passions. You won't suffer because the world loves you. But if you suffer as a Christian at the hands of a hostile world, it's because you've chosen the will of God with its righteousness. To choose God's will is to choose suffering. So Peter says, prepare yourselves to suffer. And all this begs the question, what does the evidence of my life reveal? Does it say that I choose to follow Christ or does it say that I in truth wish to choose the world? End quote. Verse 2 then shows us that once we've died to sin in Christ, we can live the rest of our earthly lives for a purpose that is different than any former purpose we ever had. Because as Christians, we don't live for the pleasures that this world alone offers. You see, we live for the higher joy of the glory of God. So what is the holy mindset that you need? Don't miss this. You need to make a decision, a commitment as a Christian that the glory of God is worth more than anything else in the universe. You need to decide that it's worth it to go through hardships, even death, if by doing so you can honor your Savior. You need to decide that it's worth it to let go of certain pleasures in this life for the glories that are to come. The weapon you can arm yourself with to turn away from sin and to survive hardship and disappointment, it's not a small weapon. It is a nuclear bomb of the infinite joy that is yours if you will honor the Lord above all. So the point here is Christians stop accepting temporary, tiny, empty comfort. Set your sights higher on what will last forever and satisfy the soul. You know, many, many times the Word of God tells us that the pleasures and the joy of God are better than any of the menial pleasures this world has to offer anyway, right? And God says to you and to me, don't set your desires on empty things, useless things that won't really fill you, but set your desire on the only thing that can give you eternal joy. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Jeremiah writes, speaking for the Lord, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. What are the two evils, Jeremiah? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Are those the people you want to be? Isaiah 55, 1 through 3 reads, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich 
food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Or Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus, in, right after the Beatitudes, at the end of that section says, Blessed are you. By the way, do you guys believe Jesus? Does Jesus tell us the truth? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He said, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26 reads, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. We have to stop being delighted by the petty. We need to stop being delighted by the trinkets this world offers us. Parents, and and, and you who are really, really little in here, you're not going to get this yet. Only your parents are going to understand this. Parents, what's the value in a Happy Meal toy? I mean, you could buy a much, much better toy at Walmart than anything that comes out of a Happy Meal box, right? They break. They don't do what they're supposed to do. They smell like grease. (laughs) Can you imagine someone who says, I want to be delighted in Happy Meal toys? and not something of actual value. Isn't that what we do? We need to set our sights, not on not having joy, but we need to set our sights much, much higher on having joy that will last. C.S. Lewis wrote, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And friends, I get it, this is hard. The moment you and I take our eyes off of eternity, we start wondering if all the Christian sacrifice is worth it. But God says it's worth it. God says we have more joy awaiting us than we could ever give up in this world. And you will fight best when you force yourself to remember that we're not in this fight for 80 years. We're in for the long haul. We're in for eternity. So arm yourself with a godly, holy mindset. Second point this morning, number two. 
Expect persecution for living differently. Expect persecution for living differently. Verses 3 and 4 read, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, and living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Many people in the church came to faith early in life. How many of, how many of you became Christians before you really acted like a heathen? Okay. Right? How many of you came to Christ early? Right? Those of you who did, be grateful to God. Have you ever thought about the sorrows and the bad memories that you've been spared by the grace of God being exercised on your soul early? But there are many who came to Christ later in life. When we had a whole truckload of stupid behind us. And that coming to Jesus, the later you come to Jesus in life, the more costly it is. But Peter points to the past of the people to whom he's writing. And as they face hardships, Peter knows they're going to face the temptation to try to turn back and fit in with the society that they're in. Peter knows these people are going to be tempted to return to being the kind of people they used to be because that could spare them the pain that comes along with attempting to live a righteous life in this world. So Peter points out the time has passed. You guys have already spent too many years, he's saying to these Christians, living like the people around you. You ever think to yourself, I really had enough time to be stupid? Interestingly, Peter says that these people are not to live like the Gentiles. The Greek word there for Gentiles is ethnos, and it's just the, the word for nations or people groups. And all through Scripture, all through Scripture from the beginning, there's always been sort of a separation, right, between the people of God on the one hand and the rest of the people in the world on the other hand. In the Old Testament, primarily, that was a Jews people of God, Gentiles not the people of God. And I think Peter's drawing on that right here, that basic paradigm to say that the Gentiles are the people that don't act like the people of God. Now, as a quick note, and by the way, I could be wrong here, but you may remember me saying to you early on, I think Peter's writing in this book to Gentile believers living in Asia Minor. And this verse actually doesn't change my opinion on that. The actions that we see Peter say that these people used to do, that doesn't really fit the way we see the Jews, even of that era, described, especially the participation in idolatry. So I assume, at least, that Peter's speaking to Gentiles who have stepped out of being the Gentiles to become not Jews, but the people of God. They're no longer identified with the label Gentile. They're identified with the label Christian, and they're not supposed to return to their old identity. Because you know what? Once you put on the label Christian, you take off the other labels that used to define you. As a little side note, you and I would do really well as Christians today if we would really cling to that truth 
because there are too many in churches today who define themselves by their ethnicity or they define themselves by their disadvantages. Too many people in the church are adopting the language of the world to tell them who they are and what they are. But God's word says to us that in Christ, we don't wear those labels. We know who we were, but in Christ, we're a new people. We're a new nation. We are the family of God and we're defined we're defined by the Christ in us and the word of God over us. We're not defined by skin color, nation of origin, or your life experiences. Well, Peter tells the, the believers here at Asia Minor, you're not supposed to live like the Gentiles. And then he gives us a, a little vice list. That's what we like to call those lists of sins when they run together like that. Sinful behaviors that sort of define for us the activities of the lost and the point of the list is not that we would exhaust all the possible ways you might sin. There's other sins not on this list. But it's to remind you of the things that the lost do that no longer should mark our lives. It may be things that if you came to Christ later in life, used to mark your life that shouldn't mark your life anymore. Let's take a quick look. Living in sensuality is to live licentiously, to live wickedly, to live for physical pleasures. It's marked by sexual immorality and drunkenness or other kinds of pleasures that go against the commands of God. Passions is the word that is for lusts, uh, epithumia, the, these almost always sinful lusts, not always, but almost always. Drunkenness, the, the Greek for that is great. It's a word that means bubbling over with wine. Orgies is a word for parties that had a lot of drunkenness and often included sexual immorality. Drinking parties are very similar. Those parties tended to spill over into the streets, public debauchery. And then it all ties together in my mind. The final word on the list is lawless idolatry. Peter says all of this stuff that I just was talking about, all the stuff you all used to participate in, it's part of the culture of the evil worship of detestable idols. And that was prominent in Asia Minor. It wasn't, it wasn't just that Peter's saying, man, I know you guys used to like to party. That's not what he's saying. Peter's actually saying, your people that you live around, they, didn't, they don't just like to party. They go to their temples and they get drunk and they participate in sexual immorality. And these evil celebrations, they are saying, those are the worship of their false gods. Now, why is that so important, you ask? Peter shows us by telling us with respect to this, they, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The people that live around the Christians in, in this world, they were so amazed that the Christians would not leap with them into the cesspool of their evil practices. So, so they'd be mad. Now, why would they be mad about that? Well, I mean, maybe the lost were thinking, if the Christians don't join us in the worship of these deities, maybe these deities are going to be mad at us and not bless us. I mean, are you Christians not civically minded? Join us in the party because then, you, then we're all going to be worshiping the same false gods. And, and so if you care about the country, you'll join us. Or maybe, maybe they didn't like the fact that the Christians were just not like them anymore. What do you think? You think you're too good for our party? You think you're better than us? 
And a Christian who wouldn't take part in the revels of the first century, that would, that would give that Christian a severe hit in his public standing. Because you know what? Business gets done at parties. You all know that's true even in our world today. Agreements would get made. Friendships would be solidified. Partnerships would be affirmed. A Christian who couldn't take part in the party would miss out. I remember, you know, hearing of, of an attorney um, who was in another city where we used to live who he would just take his male attorneys on lunch break to a local strip club and they would, get, they would do the business. Well, if, if you can't go to that, you're left out of the business, right? But Peter's not just speaking to us here about being disadvantaged. He says the lost are going to malign us. And the Greek word behind malign is the word for blasphemy. They're going to speak nasty evil against us for our refusal to go with them into their sin. What's the point? Expect persecution if you live differently. Expect persecution for living differently. Even today, in a world that's removed from the temples of the idols that we've had in the first century, you and I should expect that we are going to receive harsh treatment when we refuse to go with the world into their debauchery. Because you and I will become outsiders in the world when we won't go with them into sin. And we need to be ready to accept that harsh treatment and find that that harsh treatment is better than if we were to choose to dishonor the Lord. Friends, let's be honest. There are things that people around us do, maybe you used to do, that you, if you are a Christian, can't do anymore. You cannot be drunk as a Christian. It's against the law of God. There's no excuse for that. You cannot participate in sexual immorality as a Christian. There's no excuse for that. You cannot worship the idols of the world as a Christian. There's no excuse for that. But how many of you, when you hear that, say, well, that's easy. I don't do those things. You think like that? Take drunkenness, right? For some of you, it's pretty easy. Don't get drunk. Well, no big deal. I don't drink anyway, or I don't drink very much, so that's not a problem for me. Well, what if you're not tempted by alcohol? Is there any way that command could still apply to you? I think there's other principles. Don't be enslaved by things that would enslave you. Don't, don't be given over to things that alter your mental state for the sake of pleasure. Don't sin against the Lord for the pleasures offered to you by substances, whether they're... Some, some, of, some of you are willing to sin against the Lord for the pleasure of food. Some of you are going, crud, I didn't think you'd go there. Some of you are willing to sin against the Lord for the pleasure of, of some other drug or some other substance and, and, and to let it lead you away from clear-headed, righteous living. Or what about avoiding sexual immorality? You say, hey, I'm not sleeping around. Good, I'm glad. I would give you a sticker if I had one to give. But you know what? Are you watching things that are immoral? Are you entertained by sexual immorality? Are you entertained by simulated sexual immorality on your TV or computer screen? 
Christians who have a past, do you ever mentally just revel in your past? Remembering with fondness the accomplishments you had outside of the Lord? What about the world's idols? Well, again, none of us bow down in pagan temples, right? Good. What else does the world love? See, the world has its things it worships now, and they're not all statues anymore. The world worships being free from any restraint. The world worships comfort. Some people in the world worship being victims because they think that gives them status in society. Some people worship money. Some people worship the right to throw off restrictions like physical gender or pregnancy. And don't think for a moment, friends, that the world is going to malign us less today for not jumping off with them. The world around us hates that we don't do what they do. They do not live in a live and let live world. They hate that we won't value what they value. They hate that we won't applaud what they applaud. And the world will malign us, folks. It's coming more than you realize. They will call us hateful. They'll say we're, we're bigots. They'll say we're on the wrong side of history. They'll say we're stupid. And they will try to crush us with their words. And they will try to keep us from having opportunities to thrive in our culture. And they will try to fire a Christian who ra who's raised up to leadership in a company if that, if that Christian won't applaud what they want him to applaud or her to applaud. We need to expect it. We need to not let it catch us off guard. And we need to not let it lead us to say, well, I will compromise and sin for the sake of my financial well-being. Peter has said, friends, arm yourself. Get your weapon. It's the mindset of Christ. And that means that you have to be willing to suffer and you'd rather suffer than dishonor your God. And you've got to expect that the world is not going to get it when you don't leap with them into their sin. They're not going to get it. Now, I have to say, so far I haven't heard a great deal of encouragement. Here, how about you? You feel a little beaten up? I hope you don't feel like I'm the one who's beating you up, by the way. Because I really don't want to, because I'm in the same boat with y'all. The encouragement comes in the last point, though. Third point, live for eternity. Point three, live for eternity. Five and six. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what's the hope? The hope is eternity. The hope is forever. The lost, those who malign us for not jumping along with them and sinning along with them and for not celebrating their sinful choices, they face a judge. The lost are not going to be judged by human history nor will they be judged by their political peers or their college classmates or their co-workers who are really broad-minded. Those who hate the way of God are facing the judgment of the God they deny. Hebrews 9.27 says to us simply that it is appointed man to die once and after that comes judgment. No second chance, no way out. 
There is a judgment. There is a judge. And that judge, Christians, is our Lord. The God who made us will judge us. And those who oppose and who malign and who persecute Christians, they face the God who is the judge of the living and the dead. And Peter's saying, those who love sin, those who love the world, they're not going to get away with what they try to do when they try to hurt the people of God. There is coming a reckoning. And then in verse 6, Peter says, you know what? The gospel's already been preached even to people who are now dead. What's he saying? Peter's talking there about the fact that by his day in the early 60s, the gospel had already gone out over the past 30 years and it had been preached to people even who were dead at that point. Because there were people before this time this letter was written who died because of persecution, right? Stephen in the book of Acts died because of persecution. Uh, James died because of persecution. Many people we don't know died because of persecution. Maybe they were put to death for their faith. But Peter says this, even if those men and women died as ordinary people die, they're going to live forever just like the resurrected Jesus lives forever in glory as we see in 318. Now, you've got to think a little bit like the people of that century to see the point that Peter's really making here. See, back then, people had a really hard time separating righteousness from earthly reward. Because unbiblical people always think, if I'm good, good things happen. And if I'm bad, bad things happen. And that always goes that way. That is unbiblical thinking. That's, why we, that's one of the reasons why we just stand against the prosperity preachers on the airwaves today who would say, speak you know, happy thoughts and you're going to get extra money. That's not true. People back then believed bad people have bad lives, good people get good lives. So it was very discouraging for Christians to see other Christians suffering and dying for the faith. It was socially embarrassing to see that somebody died for the gospel. How can we say we serve the one true and living God over all if we suffer and die and don't succeed? Now add to that thinking what the words of outsiders must have been, right? The people who worshipped idols could look at the Christians and say, why would I follow your faith? Our gods don't get us killed. Our gods are embraced by the empire. My God got me a certificate that says I'm good in the empire. Our gods have some really good parties. I kind of enjoy them. Why would I follow Jesus? You Christians die just as easily as anybody else. So Peter wraps up this section with the thought in verse 6 that the gospel was preached even to people who have now died so that they can live forever just like Jesus. Yeah, you know what? We do die easily as anybody else on earth. But the difference for the Christian is when we die, we are met by the grace of God. We find eternal life. We find eternal reward. We find new resurrection bodies that are never going to die again. We find heaven. When the lost die, they face the judge of the living and the dead. When the lost die, they are judged, not according to the grace of God, but according to their deeds before a holy God. 
And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is eternal death and hell. And no party, no matter how great the party was, is worth hell. And no suffering, not even martyrdom, is so bad that heaven doesn't make up for it, friends. Hear me. Live for eternity. If you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus in faith and repentance. Turn from sin. Follow Jesus to be forgiven and to be promised eternal life. If you do know Jesus, remember, you're living for eternity, not just for today. So arm yourself with a holy mindset, knowing that suffering in this life is better than dishonoring the Lord. Yes, expect persecution for living differently. But live for eternity, setting your hope and your value on the promise of forever with Jesus. And I want to just encourage us with the words of the Apostle Paul. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, read as follows. If then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, your word is rich, powerful, and challenging. And I would ask you, Father, help us to get it. Help us to have changed mindsets. Help us to be people who would say, I would rather die than dishonor my Lord. And God, that is, I get radical. And there's a lot of people in our culture who would try to say that you don't need to live like that to honor God. But Lord, the truth is, our lives were forfeit when we gave ourselves to you. So help us live to your honor. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.